You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, Seneca Falls celebrates It's a Wonderful Life every December, but this year is special. I think the film's message always resonates with people, but even more now. And a familiar face to mini market patrons on Lake Avenue died last week. We pay tribute to Tony Lovett. He had everybody's back. You know, he helped out people in the community. All that from your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by Rock Vox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity. Produced in a full-service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at rocvox.com. 75 years ago, RKO Pictures released It's a Wonderful Life. The classic holiday film is set in a fictional Bedford Falls, which many people believe was inspired by Seneca Falls. As my colleague Beth Adams reports, this is still up for some debate. But even skeptics love the fact that the Finger Lakes town is still celebrating the much-loved movie and its timeless message. She has this story. The It's a Wonderful Life Museum in Seneca Falls hosts a festival every December. But Anway Law, president of the museum's board of trustees, says this year is special. Because it's the 75th anniversary of the premiere of the film. We have... Seven cast members from the film coming. Including Jimmy Hawkins, who still has vivid memories of portraying little Tommy Bailey. I was four and a half. He remembers director Frank Capra kneeling down to his level and carefully walking him through his scene with Jimmy Stewart. He said, now, I want you to pull on this man's coattails. And when you get right here, you see right here? Yes, sir. I want you to say, excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse you for what? I burped. Stewart's character, George Bailey, was starting to unravel there, soured by disappointment over his lost dreams. He was tempted to end it all. Bailey's inner turmoil was probably lost on young Hawkins at the time, but he and other surviving cast members traveled to Seneca Falls multiple times in recent years to revisit a theme that never seems to grow old. We believe in Frank Capra's message that each man's life touches so many others. If they weren't around, it would leave an awful hole. Maybe that's something people need to be reminded of, especially in this time of pandemic and political divide. Just like George Bailey discovers, life is pretty good when you realize that you're needed and valued. Law says this idea might resonate with people even more now. There have been a lot of opportunities for George Bailey moments, those times when people come together. And when you think about the film, you can't really have those moments unless you have a crisis. This theme of promoting the value of each person will be celebrated throughout the coming year in Seneca Falls. Law says it ties in nicely with the town's history of individuals making a difference in women's rights, for instance. Whether Seneca Falls can claim a connection to Capra's Bedford Falls is another matter. A lot of people believe Frank Capra visited a Seneca Falls barber shop and heard how Antonio Varicali drowned in the Barge Canal in 1917 while rescuing a woman who attempted suicide. The bridge overlooking the canal does look a lot like the Steel Trust Bridge in Bedford Falls that George Bailey jumps from to save his guardian angel Clarence, but not everyone is convinced there's a connection there. I regret that I have to play the role of Mr. Potter. (laughs) 
you know, the villain in It's a Wonderful Life. Film historian Janine Basinger says Capra kept a detailed diary and it never mentioned Seneca Falls. Frank Capra, in his lifetime, never recorded a visit to Seneca Falls, said he had heard this story or indicated he knew anything about it. And we have to go with that evidence because he kept records of everything. He was a meticulous recorder of detail. That's not to say Seneca Falls wasn't the inspiration for someone else involved in the film. Bessinger says the script went through a dozen or so revisions before Capra bought the rights to it. It's possible one of those writers had a Seneca Falls connection. Either way, the debate wasn't expected to dampen the excitement of this year's extended five-day festival. It continues through Sunday, December 12th, with a parade, a 5K, and various appearances throughout the weekend by Hawkins and other actors who portray the Bailey kids. The festival wraps up on Sunday night with a reenactment of the final scene of the movie. As you get older, it means more to you in different ways because you're going through different things in your life. And so it grows old with us. <laughs> Beth Adams is the host of Morning Edition on WXXI News. Hi, this is Evan Dawson from WXXI, and if you're enjoying Earshot, then you'll want to subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. That's me. On the podcast, you can catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson, where you subscribe to Earshot from WXXI News. Last week... A stabbing on Lake Avenue took the life of 59-year-old Tony Lovett. City News editor David Andrietta knew Tony and wrote a tribute to him, his love of music and baseball. He has this story. There has been a lot less music on Lake Avenue lately, ever since the man who played it was stabbed to death a few feet from where he used to sway to the sounds blaring from his speaker. His name was Anthony Lovett, but he went by Tony and he worked the morning shift at Lake Avenue Mini Market, a convenience store near Emerson Street that shares a parking lot with a speedway and a self-storage center. He was 59 years old. On most mornings, Tony could be found sitting on a woofer the size of a suitcase that he used to prop open the store door. He moved to the music and smoked cigarettes while waiting for customers. Some mornings, he smoked something stronger. He played soul, R&B, rap, whatever suited his mood that day. This, he said of his music just before Thanksgiving, this right here is what it's all about. Tony was killed the Monday after Thanksgiving in the store around 9.30 in the morning, a few hours into his shift. A 29-year-old woman, Jamie Lynn Prescott, was charged with his murder. She's pleaded not guilty. His slaying marked the city's 77th homicide this year. A day after Tony died, the prosecutor on the case, Eleanor Biggers, said Tony knew Prescott, but that the nature of their relationship was not clear and called his death, quote, a senseless, completely pointless act. I knew Tony. 
Not well, but well enough to be on a first-name basis and to describe the person he was behind the counter and the kind of person he aspired to be. Tony had been a clerk at Lake Avenue Mini Market for a couple years. He wasn't crazy about his job, but he took pride in it. He kept the shelves stocked and swept up outside. If he happened to be eating breakfast, he tossed crumbs to the sparrows that perched on the nearby dumpster. One of his regular customers, Ralph Cologne, figures he bought a Bud Light from Tony about a half hour before he was killed. He was, he was a good guy and stuff. He was real, real good. If I didn't have it, he would give me credit, you know. Other customers felt the same about Tony. A day after he died, a makeshift memorial of candles and balloons and flowers sprung up outside the door where Tony used to sit on the speaker. Lakeisha Cummings lit a candle and said a prayer and explained that she was a regular and that Tony was kind to her. He was full of laughs and smiles, she said. I saw Tony most mornings when I stopped in for a pineapple drink he sold. When the fridge broke down one day, he scoured the back room for a cold one for me. Some mornings, when it already felt like it had been a long day but was way too early for a soda, I bought a Coke. Tony never judged. Whatever gets you through, he used to say in a gravelly voice. The only two things Tony judged were the New York Yankees and what he called the kids on the streets, who he said had nothing better to do than shoot off their mouths and their guns. He used to complain that those youngsters were lost and say that they should join the military, like he did as a young man, to find a sense of purpose. Tony had been a cook in the Navy. Oh, he got another one. He got another one. No, it's off the monster. We sometimes watched the Yankees together on a TV propped up on a shelf in the store above racks of T-shirts and jeans. In the summertime, Tony had the channel tuned to the Yes Network so he could catch a replay of the game he slept through the night before. Don't tell me what happened, he would warn me when I walked in. Tony loved sports. He often wore athletic paraphernalia. On warm days, he used a patch of artificial turf outside the store as a putting green. It had the topography of the Sierra Nevada, but Tony had a knack for reading it. He especially loved baseball, though. Something about the timelessness of it appealed to him. Some people think it's boring, he once said of the game. I can't be responsible for their ignorance. Of all the things that have been said about baseball by some of the greatest players and writers of all time, Tony's observation was one of the best I had ever heard. Tony was a house painter by trade and still did odd jobs. He told me he taught his son how to paint and that his son had a successful business in New York City. Andre Hicks, who stopped by the storefront memorial to pay his respects, recalled that Tony once saved his life on a painting job when the ladder on which he was standing began to topple, and Tony grabbed it. He said they both almost fell off the three-story roof. Yeah, yeah, he had everybody's back. You know, if you were short in the store, he would let you, you know, slide with whatever you needed. You know, he helped out people in the community. For months, Tony had been talking about a painting apprenticeship program he wanted to start and said he was working with officials from City Hall to put it together. A few days before he died, he brought it up again and told me I should write about it. I told him I would if he ever got the program off the ground. There must have been an awful struggle in that store in the minutes before Tony died because the next day, after the yellow police tape had been taken down and tossed in the dumpster where the sparrows perch, the place looked like it had been ransacked. The door that Tony used to prop open with his speaker was locked, 
But a mess of t-shirts and jeans and canned goods and candy bars could be seen strewn about the place through the windows and the metal grates that protected them. In the coming days, though, the Lake Avenue Mini Market would open again. The mess was gone. So was the music. David Andrietta is the editor of City. This story was adapted from a version he wrote for their website. You can read it at rockcitynews.org. And that's it for Earshot. As always, drop us a line at earshot at wxxi.org and tell us what you think of the show, what you want more of, or what you're missing. Tell your friends about the pod and subscribe and leave us a review. Find even more local news stories on our website, wxxinews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.